Hey, everybody, we're talking to Warwick Bashford today. What an amazing guy. He runs a 501c3 charity called More Than Tennis and is a former professional tennis player turned professional tennis coach. He's a great friend of mine. You do not want to miss our conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett in Thrive Studios, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber chair. And not only that, so thankful to be a part of the first episode of 2023. Ringing in the new year with a great friend of mine, Warwick Bashwood. Welcome today to the show, Warwick. Thank you, Dallas. Thanks for having me. I mean, we're very, we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been excited to get you on the show. You are sure. a former British schools national tennis champion, competed in the ATP Tour. You're an ATP WTA Tour coach, certified professional tennis coach in like multiple countries. You've coached people like Michael Chang, who was like number two in the world. Marcus Bagdadis and Amelie Maresmo. So you've got people all over the world that you've coached. So thank you for being a part of the show and, and thank you for being on the last 10%. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So now you, when we've been talking, we've talked about this for a while. One of the things that you had said in our past conversations, you talked about using tennis, the tennis racket as a passport to fulfill your dreams. Why don't you tell everybody what that meant, what you meant when you said that and early on how you got into tennis? For sure, Dallas. As we had mentioned before, I was born and grew up in South Africa as a young boy. And before going over to the UK, I had this dream of playing Wimbledon. Mm. And I guess I needed a tennis racket. Wimbledon is the, the pinnacle of professional tennis. And I just had this vision since a little boy and desire and just a love of the game. I was fortunate to meet some good coaches in South Africa and, you know, inspired me to, to play the game. Mm. One day at the age of 12, you could see that in South Africa, we weren't really going anywhere professionally speaking. So my parents made a big commitment to, to immigrate to England. Wow. And my parents on my dad's side, he's British. We were able to get the nationality wow. and immigrate and fulfill a family dream, really. And my parents made the sacrifice for myself and my younger sister. They literally, the reason that they moved was for tennis. Was so that you could play yes. in Britain? Oh my God. Yes. My, my dad fortunately had a brother that already lived in Europe, immigrated, and he was able to join that business, start from nothing. But it was a struggle in itself and getting to England, having an accent, having a dream, being put down for that dream was really tough, but it sort of helped with the adversity and developing that, that toughness because I was like, wow, I'm in England, I'm playing on grass, I'm, which is a different surface that I'm used to. And I was learning to, to play clay courts as well. So you had two surfaces in England, the grass, which was very fast 
and the clay. And then at the age of 16, 17, I, I was realizing that I needed more. The coaching wasn't really helping me. Some of the coaches were advising me to do things that actually helped create a, an injury. And I'm not saying the coaching was bad. It was just a, an unfortunate thing that happened to me. My body wasn't ready for it. And so I decided to learn very early on how to coach myself, took certifications, started thinking if I don't survive physically, what am I going to do after tennis? So I might as well learn the trade of coach. Wow. So, so I started in the, your yeah. teenage years, you'd already had that thought that you were playing or at a very high level and that you were mm -hmm. dissatisfied with the coaching. And so you said, I, if my body doesn't hold up, you had that in your mid teens. That's amazing foresight on your part. Yeah. As an athlete, you go through different injuries, you get to know your body and, and your style of play. And I just felt that the coaches weren't seeing how my body and technique would mix. Mm -hmm. And in England, it's like fast school tennis, serve volley, everything is on grass. And I was the Rafa Nadal style, mm -hmm. just at the baseline, wanting to hit a lot of topspin. And the English were like, no, you can't play like that. It's wow. like, why not? They wanted me to play a different way and, and it created a stiffness and I wasn't natural. So by, by trying to learn coaching myself, I was able to understand where I made mistakes along the way. And with the studying helped me, but I was still, my body was very weak and I kept getting injuries and eventually it led to an injury in my back where doctors said, if I continued playing, I'd be done. I'm being a wheelchair. I'm 19 years of age. I'm about top thousand in the world and wow. I'm like, it's over. And mm. until I had an idea to go over to France. So at the age of 19, so, I'm thinking. So at 19, by 19, though, you had already won the British school's national tennis champion. You'd correct. Won that. And so is you, at this point, like leading up to that, you'd had coaching, you had some differences in opinion, but your parents moved to the Britain has really paid off at least to that point because you've realized your dream. You've won that national championship thing, and then you've moved into competing, I guess, competing. You were in the top thousand players competing in the sport professionally at 19. Yeah, no, it was very fulfilling. But at the same time, I knew that the injuries, I was going to struggle and I had to get stronger. The base, the foundation, the legs. And so to get stronger, I felt I had to be in a country where the game is played on a slower surface rather than the grass of England. So that meant going to a country like France, where they were known for the red clay wow. and the slow, long rallies. Yeah. And that opportunity to go over there was not an easy one because you couldn't, you didn't, I hadn't learned French at school, foreign language. Yeah. And now, so, so let me ask you, did you move to France after the injury or before? Was it, I need to see if I can do this after the injury happened or you're like, before the injury, you moved and then were injured in a way that you was like this done? Yeah, no, good question. I decided to take a year off prior to moving to France to rehabilitate the body, got myself a job in like a Best Buy equivalent in England <laughs> and decided to save up the money to buy a vehicle to travel over to France. And this vehicle was going to be my hotel as well. It was going to be where I lived in it and traveled for two, three months in France to see if my body could get stronger and I could make a living because in France, it was one of the only countries as an amateur status, you could earn money, you couldn't keep it, you'd have to put it in a fund. 
but at least it would help finance tennis down the road if that was what I was going to do. By spending a year working and rehabilitating, I got stronger and saved up the money to get the van, kitted it out, put a bed in it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I love it. And when you see the van, I'll show you a picture one day. It's not like one of these American V8s. It's right. like a small miniature Suzuki <laughs> four-cylinder sort of thing. Could barely fit one person lying in it. And actually... A friend of mine, my doubles partner, he decided to come with me and he was going to sleep in the tent because the van wasn't big enough. <laughs> We've had a bet that depending on who won, who would to to sleep in the van or to sleep in the tent. Oh man. Yeah. That stakes yeah. were pretty high, man. You said, okay, we're, we're playing for a good night's sleep. That's, uh, that raises the level of competition. <laughs> That's well, awesome. was something else, but... <laughs> He, he was great because as a doubles partner, we won a lot of titles as, as a doubles pair. And then unfortunately, after about a month, he got bored and wow. he missed his mother's cooking. So he, uh, he decided to, to return to England and I was on my own and I ventured into Normandy and played a lot of tournaments along the Normandy coast, learned a bit of history about the American D-Day and arrival there, but a great experience because I didn't know the language, had to learn it and, and really fell in love with the culture, the style of play. The way coaches talked to the players and decided to go to Paris, the capital, and find myself a job, believe it or not, teaching tennis. Ah, that's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's a natural transition. I wasn't sure I was making money and I still needed to make a living and um, see where my body was. But when I went to Paris, I went to work for an American tennis academy. Many people are familiar with the great Nick Boletari, the Boletari Tennis Academy in Sarasota, Bradenton, Florida. Right. And so he had a satellite branch out there in Paris and I met the tennis director and he gave me a job on the spot because he knew I could play, but I couldn't speak the language. Yes. So to eat, I had to be motivated to learn very quickly the language. Otherwise I wasn't going to get paid. Wow. <laughs> that's definitely motivation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a quick, that's a quick study. So now let me ask you, so your transition out of professional tennis was it wasn't it doesn't sound like it was as abrupt as like the injury itself it was more like you had the injury and then you started this journey of discovery like maybe i can transition right. to france you get to the different style of play in france mm -hmm. you go to france you win some tournaments you have some success there so obviously the recovery somewhat happened but then you get into this teaching school was there a moment where you're like I don't know, was it hard to leave playing to coaching or was it like it was a natural transition? What was that like as you progressed forward in your career? Yeah, no, great question. I, yeah, it was an easy, slow transition. It wasn't mm -hmm. abrupt at all because while I was working, um, I was training and I got the opportunity to see and work with French coaches and they didn't tell me, oh, you've got no chance. You're not going to. You're not going to make it. They encouraged me, but indirectly through conversations with them and seeing the training, I knew that I wasn't going to do it. My body wasn't going to hold up. When you're looking at the training needed, I hadn't had that in England. If you had maybe the talent, talent wasn't good enough. The physical ability to sustain that talent was necessary and I would have to spend another 10 years working on building that. And so that was a financial thing too, where 
you know, how you're going to finance your life as well as your training yeah. and then go on the road and travel. And I just little by little, I enjoyed the coaching mm. and learning another language, being in a country, learning a culture, different foods. And I was, I was just attracted to that. And, and actually I met my first wife there in France. There was a bit of a motivation. Okay. Do I get serious or do I give it all up and keep going? By the time you're 25 years of age, you realize it's a little late to keep going. Um, and, and the coaching just took off because I was asked to, to coach Mike, Michael Chang. Wow. And that's another story in itself. Yeah. How did that, how do you, he was an amazing U.S. You know, I guess he was played, he played for the U S right. And it was an amazing tennis player. How did that even happen? Like, how do you get linked up going and coaching? Yeah. Michael? The guy I worked for in, in Paris, the academy that represented Bolotari, he was, he was my mentor. He was the guru, the coach that taught me mostly everything I know today. And he was an ass to prepare Michael Chang for Roland Garros because Michael at the time was 15. He'd won a tournament in Charlotte, North Carolina and got a wild card to participate in the qualifying rounds for Roland Garros, the French Open. And so they contacted my boss and said, Hey, the best coach, can you train Michael how to play on the red dirt? And so I was invited because I had to be the translator because Aww. my boss didn't speak English. And here I had to be that intermediate between the two. So I got to learn even more, got to experience the world stage of the best. And that was the light bulb moment for me as a coach. When you saw Michael and you saw him playing at 15, did you have an idea how good he was going to be? He ultimately got up to be a number two in the, I guess, in the ATP in the world. How did he look at 15? Did you say, no, this guy is special? Or did you just say... Yeah, he's good, but he's got a long way to go. What was that when you went through that coaching? Yeah, he had something special, not necessarily technically or physically. It was the mindset. It, you just knew he had the champion mindset, the commitment, the, I would say, maturity. I just take, for example, we'd go out for a run after playing and my boss would say, okay, I'd like you to do these exercises. And Michael would say, no, I'm not going to do those because those are not good for my back. And oh. we're going to do these. And I was like, okay, back. show me He what. would push back on the coach. Yes. I said, the reason I do this is because my body. So you could tell he knew his body. He knew the right. And I was like, okay, show me what we need to do. And I'll hold your accountable. He was like, <laughs> whatever. Because he knew he had a plan and he executed it with excellence. And you just... And so when he played the tournament, he went through and he qualified to the main draw. And I believe he lost to John McEnroe at the time, but it was a huge success because a year later, he contacted my boss to do the same thing. And my boss was in the process of building his own tennis academy and declined. And then the guy goes on and wins it that you're at the age of 16. Oh my goodness. So my boss is like, oh man, I should have taken him on, but oh. he wins it and an incredible feat. But again, this player with a teenage body win a grand slam. And then the following year he had hip surgery because he wasn't strong enough and he was able to build that strength and then get to number two in the world over a 10 year period. But a phenomenal experience for me, for sure. Wow. That is a cool story. I like that. That's awesome. So now you've been coaching, you've been coaching for a long time 
And you've seen a lot of good things out of coaching. Like you said, you had a, the opportunity to have great mentoring through coaching and developing. You've been on the world stage. You've played tennis in three countries. You've coached in several countries. What are some, because there's a lot of leaders and leader coaches that listen to the last 10%. And a lot of people are using in the one-on-one. We have a one-on-one coaching system that we have through our app. A lot of people use that and listen to the last 10%. So when you think mm-hmm. about coaches developing people, because we're passionate about helping business leaders and leader coaches develop their team members, what are some mistakes that you see coaches make when they are engaging in the development process? And it doesn't necessarily, I don't want to limit you to ath- athletics, although you can use athletics as an example, but I just wanted to give For you sure. an opportunity to talk through that a little bit. Yeah, no, you're right. I was fortunate to get an opportunity to coach team tennis through universities like Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Here you are coaching 12 girls. And in the past, I'm used to coaching one player. And so the, the key thing is understanding the needs of each individual player. So in business, if you've got a team, salespeople, but it's understanding their needs individually and what they need because everybody's different and approaching them differently and understanding their personalities is key. It's like when I was playing tennis, nobody matched my personality with my game style. So when I coached Emily Maresmo of France, everybody in the coaching, in her coaching as a junior saw she was a strong athlete. So they built her game around topspin baseline defense. When I started coaching, I I realized her personality was an attacking, aggressive, not sit at the baseline kind of player. We actually started working together. She was number one in the world as a junior. She couldn't break into further than the top 400 in the world. And I said, okay, we're going to change everything because let me get this straight. You said she was number one in the world as a junior and she couldn't get into the top 400 when she went to. The pros. That's like that. That is that big of a gap. Is that that's exactly. amazing? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. We didn't change much. We didn't change her technique. I just turned her into an attacking player. For example, she was very physical. Her coaches wanted her to stay at the baseline for three hours, and that's how she won two Grand Slams as a junior. And then I walk in and I say, "Okay, we're going to learn the slice. We're going to chip and charge. We're going to take the ball on the run on the on the." On the hop, as we would say, like in baseball, when you're in the outfield and you take it off the bounce, take the ball very early, counter punch it like Federer does, and this revolutionized her game. And within 18 months, she was in the top 30. Oh my so, gosh. Oh my yeah, gosh. Yeah, it was huge. That's incredible. Yeah. And then let me ask you a question. You felt like that was more what you called her personality. You attribute it to... How much of that was related to, did you notice her, did she have a change in her level of, I don't know, engagement in the game or fun? Did you see that happen? Or was it just that she, her performance went better because she was naturally that? What, how, did you, what other changes did you see in, in, on the backside because you matched those two up? Oh, man, it was incredible. There were days where she didn't want to train. She wanted to leave the sport. And, and as we got to know each other, and she was like a daughter to me. We, we could see she found a love and a passion for the game and totally changed her outlook. She wanted to 
become number one in the world. And when she had originally said to me, I asked her, I said, so what's your goal? And she said, I don't want to really tell you because if I tell you, you'll laugh at me. And I said, no, I said, go for it. She said, top 10. And I said, why not number one in the world? And I said, nobody's ever believed in me. So I said, let's change that. And I gave her wings, so to speak, to see what that would bring. And when she saw the results she was getting, she realized she was going to be number one in the world and that she was going to, as I told her, I said, you're going to leave a legacy in the sport and change the sport forever. And that's what she did. Wow. That's amazing. That's incredible. So I think that's so important too, for business leaders, if you're leading teams at any level, understanding the individual yep. is so important because like you just said, it's. It, when I think about that, you're not talking about it making a major change. We talk about, and you hear a lot of other business books talking about getting the right people on the bus and put them in the right seats. Okay, well, that's fine. Uh, that's great. That's baseline. That's okay. That's basic one-on-one. We get that out of the way. But once you get the right people on the bus, it's understanding who, they're, who they are fundamentally, personality, and how that personality plays into their roles. They may have the skills to do two different roles or one role, and they may be really skillful at one role or doing it a certain way, but they, their right. personality, if they don't enjoy it, they can't fully engage and they don't feel in, known in that sense, then you might could make a single tweak and just shift some roles and responsibilities from one role and just trade them up with two people. And you don't even change their titles or anything like that, but you can just move it around a little bit or shift the process around the person just a little bit to make it fit better. And the performance is going, it, you, you can have tremendous performance impact and increase just by paying attention to some of the nuances. So I think the takeaway here is one of the reasons that the one-on-one coaching system we offer is successful and has been successful in organizations is because it really helps coaches get to know people in ways that they don't mm -hmm. typically do that. And it's like you're saying that you, I love the way that you put that is that you didn't just look at the game. You didn't look at her skill set and say, how are you doing on the baseline? Could you get there? Could you right. do this better? Could you play better defense? You looked at her as a person and you looked at her, where she, who she was, and then what she was wanting to try to accomplish. And then you, you arrange that inside the game and said, this is what that looks like. If you can do that in a professional environment, you can do it in tennis, but you can also do that in a professional environment. You may not have complete flex. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. ThinkMove Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one -on -one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams, we help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful, we created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one -on -one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. 
But you could, if you can just make some small changes that you can really see a tremendous impact on that. And I think that's, I think that's a fantastic point. Oh, for sure. Yeah, fantastic point. So uh, speaking of that, that's a great accomplishment. As you look back at your coaching career, which is amazing, you've coached some tennis greats. What to you, what's been some one or more of your most cherished accomplishments that you feel like as a coach? Yeah, I mean, there are many, but one that really stands out was when was I got an opportunity to come and live and work in America and just gone through a separation with my first wife and lost custody of three kids and lost my identity in France. And I had nowhere really to go. And I had a family that knew me through the professional tennis tour in Miami, Florida who reached out and they said to me, they've got a young daughter, she's 13, was 13 at the time, and they wanted me to work with her. And I said, does she want to go pro? And they said, not really. Our aspiration is for her to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel Prize for anything. And we just want somebody to mentor her. So I said, I'm at a point in my career where I've coached a lot of players individually. There's a lot of prima donna egos in that world. And I thought, well, here's a 13 year old who's not part of that. And let's see if I can change somebody who doesn't necessarily aspire to be a pro, but wants to play like a pro. Like her dad said, can you teach her to play like the pros? And I said, sure. Long story short, we worked for three years together and she went on to, to get a college scholarship through tennis, Carnegie Mellon went off to California and today she's a very prominent doctor in Miami, Florida. So for me, that was just as good as winning the, the national or the Wimbledon or the U S open, because that was a light bulb moment for me in saying, well, if I can coach one 13 year old to do something incredible in life, why not reach hundreds of kids Mm. and that spiraled the next part of my career, which was to be a consultant and coach for clubs. But that experience, I took this young lady to France. She was a daughter to our family. We gave her opportunities. We turned her self-doubt into somebody who believed in herself, who lost weight because she was overweight, clumsy, walked into walls. And everybody on the pro tour, the tennis tour, when they heard I was coaching this young lady, mocked my situation. Mm. And That was again, more well to the fire for me because I knew she was going to be somebody special in society Mm. and that (laughs) I I get all emotional. That's really what is probably the best experience or one of my best experiences. That's so great. I love how, I love how you describe that and the description that you were giving. It just is, it's really cool because it's, it's. It's the description of you engaging in coaching, but you can tell that when you engage in coaching, you're not just engaging in coaching a a person in tennis, you're engaging in that person's life. And I think that as business leaders, there's so many times we, we miss that opportunity. We miss the forest for the trees. We engage in somebody, we engage in only, if we engage in only coaching and developing people's skill set then we miss an opportunity because if we engage in developing a person as a human being, then not only do they have the chance to run farther, whether it's in that skill set or in some other skill set, we just, we don't want to miss that. And I think that's something that's cool that one of your greatest 
coaching moments is not coaching a, the greatest tennis player in the world. It's actually coaching, you know, someone to be a great person in life. And so I think that's, man, I think that's fantastic. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that story. It's really good. Uh, you're welcome, Dallas. And you're right. It's exactly that. It's, it's a great point for leaders or business people to understand the whole person is key. So let's talk a little bit now about as you engage people, because you have, you have your method, right? You have your way, your, what you call a champion mindset. And you've talked a little bit about that when you talked about Michael Chang and how you noticed the difference in his mindset. You've coached some of the greatest tennis players in the world. How would you describe, like when you say champion mindset, how do you describe the champion mindset? Yeah, great question. I separated into a, to four categories and it, it can be pretty, pretty direct in life when players or people want to improve there's a constant and never ending improvement process, which I call Kanich. So it's a constant and never ending improvement consciousness. But to get there, one has to determine if the, the student, the client is, or has a mentality that wants to be coachable. So if I told, if I ask somebody, I want them to find clarity on who they are. For example, the four steps are, are true champion, amateur, and loser. Okay. Let's elaborate on the loser is somebody who's very negative, who's always complaining. He's always playing victim and is blaming others. The amateur is the person who's not really sure where they are and maybe is jealous of the champions. Are they prepared to do the work? Are they prepared to be committed and consistent? rather than criticizing the champions. And then the champions, they can be champions and win trophies and be very selfish and self-absorbed and dog eats dog and it's all about me sort of thing. And then there's the true champion where there's enough of the pie for everybody who's humble, wants to give, give back. Somebody like Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, to name but a few where Federer is bringing water to countries in Africa and yeah, for me, that's the true champion, the person who's accepting to be vulnerable and held accountable and will, and wants to be coached no matter what his level is. I love those. I love so, the, I love your definition of the amateur. I like them all because they all are accurate. I think that's a fantastic, but the amateur is the, I love how you say the amateur is the person who actually is criticizing of the champion and like jealous of the champion, it sounds like, and all that stuff. I, I think exactly. that's so mm -hmm. true. And I don't know. I think that that mindset is something that is limiting. It is that whole mindset is what it, it actually is what keeps people mediocre. It's like in business. Like if you're just always angry at your boss because they're your boss and you're, you, and you're just criticizing them then the, all that energy that's going into criticizing that is either A, keeping you from doing a really good job that would get you a promotion, or B, it's diverted to that where it could be put into a side hustle that maybe one day turn into a, your own company that you could be running and be the boss. I do think that's, I do think that's a, a, fascinating, a fascinating breakdown of that. Well, those four categories. there are stats out there and about 65% of people are in that amateur status. That's a lot of people, but it, it's not necessarily any fault of their own. And that's where, as a coach, I've come to understand that if we want to talk about mental toughness or champion mindset, it's all very well to say, okay, you've got to think like this, you've got to have this kind of an attitude. But if you haven't been in an environment 
where somebody's helped you understand who you are to release that potential, people will feel stuck and frustrated and start being jealous where a good coach can understand that and say to that person, why are you willing to be coachable? Because I can get you from amateur to the champion mindset. Do you tend to see people, I guess if I'm a loser, then my goal is not to be, my goal is not to become a true champion right away. I guess it's, is it progressing? My goal is just to get to the amateur and then get to the champion and then that, or is it like, no, you can start being a true champion immediately if you have, a, if you have, a, if you have the right mindset. Oh yeah. You can turn it around within 10 seconds. I love it. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Going from loser to true champion in 10 seconds. I love it. Oh yeah. It's just a, it just depends how dissatisfied that person is with their current situation and what they're willing to do. And through some of the training that I do and help clients get through is determining what are the negatives? What are the positives? What's the vision and how we're going to get there? Obviously we can't get to that mindset within 10 seconds, but we can change our attitude to applying the principles. And then as we all know, staying accountable, that's why our coach comes in because sure. it's difficult. We're all, we're all human and we all want to cheat and that's <laughs> right. That's right. And oh, that's where it. the coach comes in. Oh, that's good stuff. Oh, that's good stuff. So the champion mindset, you said, use that term that you used that you coined that was always kind of improvement, like a continuous improvement mindset. And then you broke it down with those four kind of people usually fall into four categories where most people fall into the amateur category. Mm. I do think that a lot of people don't realize it. I don't feel like that they realize how what they think that is keeping them in a position maybe they don't want to be in or not, or just limiting their ability to achieve or do things in a more impactful way, greater way. So now that we've talked about the champion mindset, I really, I really would love for you to tell us that kind of has led you and it's been great to hear your journey, but now you've had the pro career, you've been coached, you've been coaching pros for many years. You've developed this champion mindset kind of philosophy and program that you implement and have helped a lot of people in not only tennis, but in life. But now you've got something new. We're very excited about that. You're early on in this vision. So tell us about More Than Tennis, your new 5013C. Yeah, no, More Than Tennis has been on my heart for about three or four years. And it's really about yeah, catering for children in unresourced families. All through my career as a tennis player and coach, I've seen the struggles financially of players and families. And originally when I wanted to play the professional game, my goal was to make enough money to help others. But wasn't, I wasn't playing the pro tour to be famous, to, to have the most titles. I just wanted to make money to give to people. Mm -hmm. And after being injured, I thought, okay, how am I going to do that? Let's get into coaching and I'll become this great coach. And then I'll give my money to communities again. And I realized that coaching, you know, I wasn't going to become wealthy or financially stable. So I thought to myself, how can I reach a lot of kids? A coach like myself doesn't necessarily want to work with kids who are not going to aspire to be pro. They get that level and they're like, they're not good enough. They don't amount to anything. Why should I waste my time? Right. But. If I couldn't make the money to help 
coaches or clubs to develop kids, I had to be that coach. Mm. And, and, I, and working within clubs, I realized I still wasn't going to be able to financially help players. I've been able to help a few and people have said to me, well, worry, don't charge what you should charge. And I said, well, that's my way of giving back because then they forward to have me. And, uh, but then I just felt that more than tennis being a nonprofit, I would be able to perhaps attract people that believed in the vision of helping others through tennis. Tennis is a great life lesson. It was my passport to getting to where I could learn a language. I was told I could never amount to much. And yet tennis was a path that just opened up. So I'm like, well, why can't I create that opportunity for hundreds of thousands of kids? And the goal with more of the tennis is obviously to raise funds to, to use tennis as a platform to develop leaders. And so that's the motivation and the inspiration. I love that, man. I love that. I mean, it, you definitely see it in your life. You have such a clear picture and idea of what it means to be disciplined, what it means to be committed, what it means to be motivated, driven, and that champion mindset, what it means to give back. And I think that tennis has informed a lot of that over the years for you. And you can tell that you've used that sure. already. You've leveraged that on an individual basis too, when you've coached both pro tennis players, but also people that you knew from the start weren't even planning on going pro. They were going to go do Nobel prize work or something somewhere. So I think that's really cool. And your more than tennis, you've looked at maybe developing a whole tennis center that you can open up to some communities that are maybe underprivileged. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We have been fortunate to acquire a piece of land through a family in town in Spartanburg, South Carolina, who will obviously sell the land to the nonprofit and a very a reasonable rate rather than trying to make money on this. This is about right. helping the community. So on their side, they want to be involved. So we've got the piece of land and we're really excited because we feel we can start this project in 2020. I'm sorry, that was 2023. My dog here is going a little wild. <laughs> uh, He's wanting to get in on the last 10%, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we're excited because I believe that when you have a methodology for teaching life skills through tennis, it needs to be, it needs to be put out there. And by building tennis facility specifically for tennis, and we're not going to go into other sports, ping pong or racquetball or pickleball, yeah. this is tennis. This is and tennis. through tennis, we can change lives. I love it, man. We can change the world. Yeah, we can change the world. I love it. I love your vision. I love your passion about not only tennis, but about helping develop young people to set them up for success in their life and using tennis as the tool to facilitate that change. I think that's just so impactful. So if some listeners would like to see that vision and help that vision become a reality, we, we would love for them to be able to get in touch with you. How can listeners of the last 10% find you and you and see more information on your vision of more than tennis? That would be amazing. First of all, it would be a dream if anybody out there was interested in, in being a part of this. And yeah, we have a website called warwickbashboard.com. And there's a link on there for our foundation. And that way they can see what we're des desire is for the community, for the tennis program and the needs we have. And if there's any, any other questions, we can answer them as well. Wonderful. All right. Workbashford.com. We'll have that link in the show notes. If anybody wants to reach out 
contact War, Warwick on that and find out more information on More Than Tennis. Please do. We would encourage you. We are big fans. Hey, listen, we're, we're going to have to have you back on the show maybe at the, maybe at the end of the year. Since this is the beginning of the year, maybe we'll have you on at the end of the year or the beginning of next year to see how more than tennis is coming along Love in progression. To. And we'll have to get more updates on the on the new courts going and whatnot. And we're excited to hear it. And I just want to thank you again for your insights and wisdom. If you would, if you had any advice for coaches or leaders that that are leading and coaching teams that you'd like to leave them with, what would be something that you would offer as an advice to people who were really passionate about developing people? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great point. I think I know that being patient and listening to the individual, mm-hmm. learning more about them and being a great communicator, that's really key is taking the time to listen rather than dictating yeah. and, and being able to get those answers and help that person that way. So we usually end the show by asking the guest if they have anybody they would like to hear as a guest on the show, The Last 10%. Who would you like to see or hear on The Last 10%? There's an amazing Olympian, Ruben Gonzalez, four-time Olympian. Incredible story and what the Olympics taught him. And yeah, it's, it's just something, somebody I really respect and feel he can help a lot of people too. Wonderful. All right. We'll have to reach out to Ruben and see if we can get him on the show. We would love to have Ruben Gonzalez on the last 10%. That'd be fun conversation. So we'll have to see if we can work that out. If we do, we will let you know. Warwick, thank you again for being on the show today. It has been so much fun. We appreciate your time and we look forward to hearing more updates on more than tennis and all that you're into. Thanks again for being on the last 10%. Thank you, Dallas. Appreciate you. Thanks for joining us today on the last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.